0: Last week, we sort of finished up Hebrews 10, which, of course, then takes us inexorably to Hebrews 11. However, we're going to back up a little bit and take kind of a run at it. And let's pick it up at 10.32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the yet a little while and so forth is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. However, unless you have a Septuagint, you will not recognize the quote. The quote is out of the Septuagint as opposed to out of the Mesoretic text. And they read differently, and I think the difference is important, and I'm not sure what to do with it. So I've got the Septuagint up here. Just pick it up at the beginning of Habakkuk 2. I will stand upon my watch and mount upon the rock and watch to see what he will say to me. Then I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and that plainly on a tablet, that he that reads it may run. For the vision is yet for a time, shall shoot forth at the end and not in vain, though it should tarry, wait for him. For he will surely come and will not tarry. If he should draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the just shall live by faith. But the arrogant man in the of the boastful man, shall not finish anything. So forth. Very different than those of you who are reading it in a derivative of the Mesoretic text. And I'll go ahead and read it from English Standard. And then probably from the Tanakh. So, Habakkuk 2.2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Y'all keeping that firmly all in mind. So now let's flip over to the Tanakh, which is yet a bit different. And the difference are interesting. So again, Habakkuk 2.2 from the Tanakh. The Lord answered me and said, Write the prophecy down, inscribe it clearly on tablets, so that it can be read easily. For there is yet a prophecy for a set term, a truthful witness for a time that will come. Even if it tarries, wait for it still. For it will surely come without delay. Lo, his spirit within him is puffed up, not upright. But the righteous man is rewarded with life for his fidelity. Now, the major difference between the Septuagint and the Tanakh is, first off, we're waiting for someone, not something. In the uh, Septuagint, we're waiting for someone. For he will surely come and will not tarry in two, three. And then we have this, If he should draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him, which is not in any of the meseretic-derived text. And that's the phrase that shows up in Hebrews. Just like most of Yeshua's quotes are from the Septuagint, the idea that this would be also is not untoward. What I want to talk about is faith. And actually, let me read forward a little bit, because it will bear on what we're doing here. So I'm now back in Hebrews, and I'm going to start in chapter 10:37, and we'll just rip through there. So 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So that's the chunk I want to camp out on for a while. Faith. For those of you who are of a dictionary mind, if you look up faith, you'll find about four definitions for the word. One is belief in a religious system, in other words, I have faith in the teachings of some church or whatever. Another one is trustworthiness, K is faithful to do the laundry periodically so I always have clean shorts. That's another use of the word faith doing something routinely and reliably. I am faithful standing guard at my post. So now what I am is I'm out there as a guard at my post, and I stay there because I am faithful. And then, of course, the last one is that human faculty which brings things into existence that do not exist. Same word. So as you read, you need to be sort of careful about how the word is being used in the passage of Scripture you're reading. And I just showed you three different translations of that passage from Habakkuk from three different versions of the Bible. Septuagint is different from the English Standard, which is different from Jewish Publication Society which means that the translator in each of those things thinks something different is being said. Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I am not qualified to argue among them. Now, most of the Christians who read this, Sunday Christians, which is fine, will say that the faith being talked about there is trust in God. In other words, that is the definition of faith being used. In the Tanakh, it is someone who faithfully walks in the way of God. The difference. One is being faithful in his walk as he lives his life and is living his life according to the precepts that God would have him live. So he is faithful and his faithfulness, walking in the ways of God, will preserve it very much in concert with Proverbs. You read Proverbs, you find that concept all over the place. The idea that walking in God's ways will preserve you. So the Jewish Publication Society's translation there is, if you walk in God's ways, you will be preserved, which is fine. That's a good translation. And I will suggest that one of the reasons the JPS translates it that way is as a reaction to the Christian understanding of the same passage. I was reading an article by Lord Sacks on the translation of the Septuagint. And what he said was is these 70 scholars got together because at the time it was written, the vernacular among Jews was Greek. Hebrew had become to the Jews much the same as Latin is to the Catholics today, it was a specialist's language. The comment that Sachs made is as they were translating into Greek, they were running into passages that had no way to be expressed in the Greek language, sort of like the NIV, which is a thought-for-thought translation as opposed to word-for-word translation. And so what they tried to do is tried to come up with a document that would make sense to somebody who only read Greek. The same thing probably has happened with the JPS translation into English, because there are passages that the Christian church fastens on and says, see, 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 this is what Yeshua, and and what you'll find when you read those passages in JPS is they're subtly altered. So they're not quite so obviously messianic as you would get from reading King Jimmy or one of those translations. So anyway having said all that let's talk about faith. In order to understand faith you need to think about time. We are creatures who live in time and specifically we live in the present. The past can be consulted but it can't be changed. So once the present moment is behind you, what happened behind you can no longer be altered. So, you know, if I take my hat and drop it, my hat has dropped. And if it were fragile and it was broken, it was broken. And the fact that I might be able to pick my hat up and I might be able to repair my hat and all that kind of stuff doesn't alter the fact that in the past it has broken and that can't be changed. So the only place you have to act is in the present. The future... Is all potential. The future is malleable, changeable, because the future doesn't get frozen until it goes through the window of the present and becomes the past. My favorite way of saying it is we live in three and a half dimensions length, width, height, you know, XYZ, however you want to call it. And then time is half a dimension, which means you can move forward and look back but you cannot look forward and move back. So it's half a dimension. Now, faith is the mechanism that we all have that allows us to live in the time stream. For example, with my hat again, I have faith that if I turn loose on my hat, it will drop, and I have faith that the table will catch it. Now, that isn't very strong faith, because I've done it hundreds of times, and it is isn't very remarkable. But the fact is, Faith is what allows me to decide, in the next second, I'm going to drop my hat. Well, I didn't drop my hat because I decided not to. So that second was completely malleable. I could either drop my hat or not, as I chose. And my agency is what makes that decision. Now, as you're approaching forward in time, what you're doing is you are mentally deciding what future you want to live in the present to turn into your past that's what you do every split second of your existence you're always making decisions to decide what possible future you are going to operate through the window of the present and turn into the past there's mechanisms you can use to do that mechanism number one is faith mechanism number two is indifference you just don't think about it you just sort of running on an automatic pilot and the third one is fear so you can look at the future with faith I want this to happen or fear I don't want that to happen but it's the same mechanism, It's, it's your mechanism of turning the future via the present into the past. The human mechanism that God built into you is fear and faith and they are flip sides of the same mechanism One is negative, the other one is positive. And what fear and faith serve to do is turn the future into the past. Choose which future you want within limitations. For example, if my future is I want my hat to float up to the roof, well, that's not one of the possible futures. Because if I turn loose to my hat, the laws of gravity are going to draw it down to the table. And so the fact that I may want to have it float up is a matter of a difference because that's not going to happen. So there are limitations on the things upon which faith can operate and I will suggest by the way that if I were perhaps Yeshua or the Holy Spirit, the hat floating up might be available to me. So faith is the faculty that allows us to decide what futures are possible and then act to turn them into the past that we desire. And what Scripture says is your vision of what is possible is far too limited. And the example that he uses is here in 11. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what he's saying there is God created the entire universe by faith. And the things that God saw as possible were the entire universe. And so when he saw that that was possible and spoke it out, it became reality. For example, Yeshua says, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move, and it would be removed. Which I see as a statement of your faith is limited by what you believe is possible. Again, my example of my hat. I just don't believe that upon turning loose of my hat, it's going to float up. I just don't believe it. And I can pray and I can command the hat to go up and on it, but I just don't believe it. I, I truly don't believe that the hat's going to float up. So it won't. And you're only always in the present. That's where you always are. And it's a moving frame. You can make decisions on what you want to have happen, and then you can choose actions and speak words that you hope will cause the present that you want to come into being. You know, you've got other actors, so all of you have your own ideas of what you want your future to be, and they will affect me and the whole world, and of course you've got spiritual forces and all. I am simply setting out what's going on so we can talk about the mechanism of faith and understand what we're talking about so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is God essentially created everything out of nothing by faith he spoke what he wanted and it came into existence to include time itself by the way it isn't clear that he's in the same time stream we are but our time horizon and the material universe all came into being his faith because he created it out of nothing. The only thing that was there was his word and his faith. And I'm using faith as the mechanism by which you decide what kind of future you want and then you take actions to make that happen. And the future he wanted was this universe to be in existence and people on the planet and all that kind of stuff, so he made that happen and the mechanism of deciding what he wanted, his faith, the mechanism of making it happen is speaking. So I've got my hat up in the air here, and what I want to have happen is my hat to be on the table. And so what I do is say, my faith is in the next couple of seconds here, my hat's going to be on the table. The mechanism I use to make that happen is I turn it loose. Now let's talk about the idea that he made everything out of something that wasn't there. What that tells you is that the resources in the spiritual are greater than the resources in the physical. There is no lack in heaven. Everything that's needed is in heaven because everything that is was made out of nothing. Now, let me stop before I get too wild here. We live in this little sandbox that he's created. And he has created rules in this little sandbox, like with my little silly example of my hat gravity. That's one of the rules in the sandbox, and we all learn to live with it. And there are lots of rules in the sandbox that we have learned to live with. Some of them are immutable, but not necessarily all of them. Remember I said one of the mechanisms you can use to move through the present is autopilot. Not thinking about it at all. Lots of people sleepwalk through life, and are at best reacting to what the world does to and with them. And the dominant mechanism that most people use going through life is fear. But understand, fear will make the future happen just like faith will make the future happen. It's just the negative side of the same mechanism, of the same faculty. And what God says, it's an old preacher story and I've never counted them, that there are over 365 fear knots in the Bible. Now, I've never actually counted them. It's sort of a preacher's thing that everybody says. But the point is, God says over and over and over again, do not be afraid. And he wouldn't say it that much if he didn't have to. Because when you bump up against the world, it hurts. And so you get defensive and you start operating in fear. And God has to tell you over and over and over again, meet our afraid." and the reason he says that is because the future that you bring into your past will then be negative if you operate in fear. Past can't be changed, remember? So what you're doing as you live is you are creating the past. And so what he wants is a past to be created that is in accordance with the things that he wants to have happen. And if you're operating in fear, That doesn't happen, because the past that you then create is not one that he's pleased with. You are an agent, which means that you have free will. All right, so now we're down to verse 4 in chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts... So what you had then is two men looking at the past they wanted to create. One of them brings an animal sacrifice, the other one brings salad, and God looks at one and he chooses this one and he says, that's the one I want to have happen. Of course, then we get all sorts of things that go along. We don't know what gave them the idea to sacrifice, but Scripture doesn't say. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what he's saying is what we want you to operate in is with an understanding A, that God is, and B, that if you do things that are pleasing to God, you will be rewarded. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So the question becomes, did Abraham have a choice as to whether or not he would obey God and go? I believe. Had he not done that, Genesis would be completely different. Now, we can certainly argue that God would figure out a way to get what he wants done done. I mean, he is God after all. But it's Abraham's obedience and believing that God would do what he said he would do that caused Genesis to be written the way it was. So the past that Abraham created is recorded in Genesis, and it is a consequence of his agreeing to do what God told him to do. And God, by the way, encourages that. Rewards us, gives us blessings, gives us all sorts of incentives, if you will, to do the things that he wants to have done and to create the past that he wants to have created. So one of the things is you need to believe that he exists and you need to believe that he's able to do that. And if you believe that he exists and you believe that he's able to do that and you then organize your life to walk according to the principles he's laid out, then it is very likely that you will create a past that is pleasing to him. There are very few people in the world that God grabs by the stacking swether and says, all right, I want you to go over to Egypt, and I want you to get my people out of there. Those are rare individuals. There are, what, six or seven billion of us now? So the number of Moseses is, I would suggest, very small because he doesn't need many of them. You know, one is quite enough thank you. but each one of us has got a list of things that he says in scriptures do these and he's got another list that says don't do that don't fool around with your sister don't eat pork and over here be generous and so forth so you got stuff that you have to do or you're supposed to do and stuff that you're not supposed to do and I don't have any idea how much of your life is consumed by those two ends of the spectrum but I will suggest that it's probably Only about 10 or 20% of your life. Which means that the other 80% of your life, the stuff in the middle, which is neither forbidden nor commanded, you get to decide. You get to choose. You get to decide whether you're going to be a baker, a candle maker, or an Indian chief. You get to decide that. The point is, he's given you a set of principles to live by, And then what he wants you to do is go out by faith in him and create a past that is pleasing to him within that 80% where you have free range to operate. As I said, the Abrahams are fairly rare. The Moseses are fairly rare. But there's a whole lot of the rest of us that God created because he wanted us for some reason. Now, again, don't get me wrong, if God reaches down and taps you on the shoulder tonight and says, Africa, Go ought to pick up and go to Africa for whatever reason. But if he doesn't, then what you do is you lead a virtuous life as best you can, and you then look forward in faith and see what kinds of things you can create to make a past that's pleasing to God. And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that God is hands-off. He's not. He's involved in his creation. And will give you ideas through prayers and dreams and those kinds of things. I'm not suggesting that this is a hands-off operation. He's not. But the range of activity that is available to you is very large. And the guys that get all the ink are the ones that God, you, leave your land. You, go back to Egypt. You, go do this. But those folks are rare. Pick it up at eight again by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God now stop there for a minute scripture does not say that this is the writer of Hebrews says this I'm not arguing with it I am simply saying that the writer of Hebrews is saying that as he went through his life he was looking forward to a city that was built by God and we don't see that until we get to Revelation so verse 10 again for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised And again, if you read Genesis, that ain't the way the story was told. Abraham had faith, and Sarah was doubtful. Now, we just had that little vignette where God and the two angels are there, and, and Sarah's hiding, listening, and she snickers. I'm not doubting what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. I'm just, one of the things that Orthodox Jews will do is they'll go through this, and they'll pick this book apart like that. And there's lots of stuff in here which is, not quite as recorded verse 12 therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that there were strangers and exiles on the earth so what abraham was promised was land and descendants that's the blessing that Abraham was promised. He was promised the land that he was sojourning on, and he was promised that nations would descend from him. By the time he was dead, he had received some land. He bought the cave of MacPelah to bury Sarah. So he had a down payment on the land, and he had one son. So he died believing that the rest was going to come. So verse 13 again. for them a city. So what he's doing is he's obviously looking forward to the Reformation when we get a new heaven and a new earth and and all that kind of stuff. All of this is not explicitly stated in the Torah and the Tanakh. This is the writer of Hebrews' interpretation of what's going to happen in light of his understanding of the resurrection and, and so forth. Again, I'm not arguing with him. I'm simply remarking that This is a later interpolation on the events of the Tanakh. 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be made. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And again, this is a later interpretation in light of understanding of resurrection and so forth. And I'm not suggesting that he's wrong. I'm simply saying that it's commentary on the Torah, which is not written in the Torah explicitly. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the israelites and gave directions concerning his bones and that is true that is a vignette if you will in the torah because when joseph dies of course he is embalmed as the viceroy of egypt and he makes his brothers promise that when the exile is over they should take his bones with them and bury them in the land verse 23 not arguing with him, but that doesn't strictly comport with the events. He, in fact, got run out of town for murder. He was living in Midian, seemingly perfectly content for 40 years to herd goats. And It was only when God reached down and grabbed him by the stacking swivel that he turned around and went back. I'm not gainsaying the writer of Hebrews here. I'm simply saying that the events in Scripture don't quite match that. This is more Midrashic than Scripture. 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. That's true. He definitely had a personal encounter with God and was in no doubt whatsoever about the relative power of Pharaoh and God. 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as of on dry land, But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. And that's all true. Rahab explicitly decided to welcome the spies and cast her lot with them. And she had faith that by doing that, she would be delivered. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That's the Shunammite woman. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's gonna take a minute to unpack and I don't have a minute. So what we'll do is we'll pick up at verse 39 next time because that's gonna take a little bit of discussion.